become a facilitator of these stories that are everywhere. I'm just stitching them together. I'm more of a glue at the end. I'm not inventing something that is not there. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to multidisciplinary designer Raphael Navot. Based in Paris, Raphael creates furniture, objects, and bespoke spaces. Describing himself as a non-industrial designer, his work is characterized by the use of organic shapes, noble raw materials, and traditional man-made techniques. This results in immersive spaces and sensuous volumes meticulously crafted in rich, earthy materials like stone, charred wood, mineral coatings, leather, and cashmere. He graduated from Design Academy Eindhoven with a degree in conceptual design, and he first gained international recognition in 2011 with his design of Silencio, a collaboration with famed filmmaker David Lynch in the form of a nightclub and cinema. Since then, Raphael's deeply diverse portfolio of work includes celebrated projects such as the Parisian flagship boutique of Japanese brand Pas de Calais, the Hotel National des Arts et Métiers, a 66-room hotel and restaurant in central Paris, a highly technical line of end-grain flooring for Oscar Ono, and a solo exhibition at Friedman Benda featuring a collection of luxe sculptural furniture and objects. Most recently, in January of 2023, he was selected as the Designer of the Year by Maison and Objet. As you'll hear in this conversation, Raphael's demeanor is as earnest as his materials and as thoughtful and poetic as his work. Here's Raphael. My name is Raphael Navot. I am based in Paris, working and living. I'm a designer. I understand you were born and raised in Jerusalem. Can you take me back to young Raphael and talk to me about your childhood and your family dynamic? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Um, I was born in, in Jerusalem in uh, 77. I remember moving quite a lot with my family around Jerusalem from different neighborhoods. I think my mom was a bit escaping the religious aspect, you know, as Jerusalem became stronger and stronger. Your mom's from Poland originally, yes? Yeah, my mom's from Poland. My dad is from Morocco. So that's already a, and a, a contrasted uh, mix for Israel. Why were you in Israel to begin with? I mean, their families of both and 
immigrated. Israeli op- op- opened its port in 1948 and way before, but there was a lot of immigration, both idealistic or I would say practical. So my, the family of my dad came from Morocco and the family of my mom came from Poland. So yeah, we're first generation. Yes, interesting. And the moving around, understandably, there's a lot of conflict there. And were you moving around to avoid the conflict? I think essentially my parents were concerned about the fact that some neighborhoods were becoming more and more religious. They were very insisting on liberal education for us. And I think that in Jerusalem at that time was not so easy. So yeah, we moved quite a lot as children. We were four of us. I'm the second. Yeah, about two years apart. So it's quite tight. Imagine. Mm-hmm. Are you close with your siblings? Yeah, very much. I'm just going to guess, but moving around a lot also means switching schools. Yeah, switching schools, switching for me, it's funny. The first thing I thought about moving around was about home, changing a home. I didn't even think about the social frame. Well, talk to me about changing homes, because that means you have a deep connection to environment, which I'm not surprised to learn. Yeah, I'm living. I mean, it's funny. I always think that my parents, they have good days, but they have, especially my dad has a practical sense because my dad was a carpenter as a hobby. Our rooms were mostly built by my dad. So the bed, the cupboards, everything around it. Okay, this is all adding up, Raphael. So talk to me about your teenage years. You've got it. It sounds like a tight knit family, a liberal education. You moved from environment to environment and lived in these spaces that were lovingly crafted by your father. But at the same time, they're growth spurts for us. Our bodies are changing. We're floundering to find a new identity. What was yours like? I think that me and my older sister, we have what you might call a creative OCD. We were really obsessed with all kinds of games that we would invent ourselves. So most of my childhood, there was a lot of craft and a lot of drawings and a lot of making. So even though I see myself as coming from a rather normative background, then again, everybody might describe that and thinking of the contrasted country, which I grew in and all the events around my family. I think that we were already as children quite using a lot of our time to escape into creation. So I think creation as therapy or as a method of mending the known spoken has already been very much implanted. Did you just say mending the non-spoken? Yeah. It's a turn of phrase that I'm not familiar with, and it might be because English is, is your second language. Yeah, English is my second language, but that's why sometimes I find myself inventing terms. Yes, but so that is a beautiful invention because so much of what needs to be addressed is non-spoken. Can you actually describe some of the ways that you were mending the non-spoken through creativity? Just the ability to make something from nothing for a child, but also for an adult, is giving you a certain sense of liberty, right? And agency. Yeah, exactly. You have agency. And more than anything, you have liberty to create a reality or let's say an altered reality, which uh, I think I remember spending, I think me and my older sister, she's two years older, we spend hours just side by side drawings or making something, hours. And somehow this was our favorite time. It wasn't about drawing funny bears and all kind of family constellations and and checking all the colors. We were actually quite methodological. It's very unlikely. Brown was our favorite color. Can you imagine? Really funny. And we would just color a full page in it. It's not even drawing something on it. And then we used to take the page and cut it little pieces. It was really like a, a sweatshop. We were creating sweatshops for ourselves. We were creating really hard label. And we would make this tiny brown bowls, and this would be the food that we would feed all our puppets with. But we used to do it for hours. Oh <laughs> my goodness, this is amazing. And there is something meditative, even though you, you describe it as a sweatshop and hard labor. <laughs> yes. and, and it is, it's tedious, it's repetitive. And at the same time, there's something meditative and you get to be in a constructed, safe space with your sister. I think it was a very intuitive meditation that we developed quite early through craft because at the time even though it sounds funny but for kids to be so obsessed with the amount the size of the paper the type of paper that we're going to use what kind of browns i remember all our palettes of colors they were always missing the color brown because it ran out 
<laughs> and it was the most unpopular color possible for a child. But that's how we knew food for animals is brown. It was a very simple idea. Oh, so your attraction to brown was because it had sustenance. It was a logical color. And I think that when you think about all the colors that we've been proposed as children, they don't make any sense. Our body, our environment are really rarely in a beautiful idealistic space has all these colors. Also, maybe I used to live in Jerusalem when it was still very naive. It was very bare and we had nature that was very virgin. Dry herbs, stale greens, clear sky. Oh, wow. Very muted. Yeah, very muted colors. The limestone of Jerusalem, because it, you have to build in one stone. Still today, it's the law, but you can only build from the stone of the ground. So basically, whatever you dig in, you build up. Similar to Paris. Thank you for going that deep into your childhood activities, because you painted a, a vivid picture for me. And clearly you had support from your parents to engage in these activities. They're wanting a liberal education for you. Did you have support from them in terms of pursuing something creative when you went off to study conceptual design? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, all the time. What informed your decision to go to Holland to study conceptual design at Design Academy Eindhoven? I think firstly, because I, since I'm coming from a, a new country and Israel with everything that you can say about it politically or from an anthropological sense, it's still very young for craft and design and art. Of course, it's developing pretty quickly. It's very typical to Israel to catch up and further. Not only that they catch up in all fields, that they go even further, but there was something a little bit too new for me. And I didn't feel that I could get the study that I want or to understand. And just few visits to Europe unveils so much history and so much heritage and legacy and knowledge. And I remember just when I was 15 or so, it was the first time I was abroad. And the first thing that I was fascinated by was pavements. There were finished pavements everywhere. It was just stunning. And with cobbled stone and all kind of granite that I don't know. And around the trees, there was this bronze protection. And inside this protection, there was little tiny stones. I was mind blown. The textures of ancient cities is really engrossing, mesmerizing. Yes. So I had a question. It's I want to back up a little bit. I'm thinking about these rooms that you live in that your father built and understanding he's from Morocco. Did they have a kind of Moroccan craft to them? Not particularly, although he did create a lot of plaster structural libraries, which I'm still using in almost all my projects. He used to build plaster libraries, which are in the walls. But I think my, my father have nine brothers and sisters. I imagine it to be a lot of independence because by the time you were five year old, you're already responsible for three kids. And he was the first born. Yeah. So I think he has always a, all ability can do all type of men. You're mesmerized by the depth, the tradition, the uh, history, and the craft legacy of these European cities. So you you went off to Holland to study conceptual design. Can you talk to me about your college years and what you felt you could take away from the college years that has really served you? Yeah, a lot, actually, especially from the Design Academy end of it. I mean, first I did a trip. When you go out of the army, Israel, both for girls and boys, you have three years of your life that you gave in one way or another. And I think a lot of Israelis go and travel just to, to, to wind off. They go to India or Africa. I traveled to different countries in Europe to find my school, to look for my school. And the first thing I wanted to do is to study architecture. That was the main thing I wanted to do. I arrived to London to meet a friend of my grandfather, who's called Joseph Rickford, who's a professor of architecture. He was back then working for the AA. And just one meeting with him, I realized that's just not for me. Okay. Okay. Good. That's efficient. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was the responsibility really turned me off. Like the idea of building something that will last there. And I thought, I do want to do architecture, but I was really refrained from the idea of something that would last. 
I know we're still in your college story, but if we could back up a little bit, the the years you spent in the Israeli army, yeah, was that impactful on you? I was lucky to have a great service. It's a very informed army, so I've learned a lot. And I was working already in amazing softwares and things that I work daily now with back in 95, can you imagine? I was already mastering many 3D programs in 95. Wow, that's intense. Yes. So in a way, back then, I was already, the army gave me a lot of education and a lot of experience. You're only 18 years old and you're walking around with an M16 and you're studying at five in the morning. So it gives you like immediate, a very instant type of growing up or let's say having some responsibility. Do you feel like it also takes your innocence in a way? I think it does somehow, but when you see as a country, you always talk about since you're very young, it's like, what do you want to do in the army? And it's a very smart army. It gives somewhat a choice. You're not completely in the hands. And I think there's never a discussion about not doing it. Of course, there, 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 there can be. But the idea in general is to create something that can work both sides. And I ended up doing a creative job. So when I left, I started to do maquette. I was building like architectural models. This makes sense. And I can also see the army as, as maybe more of a rite of passage than something that steals your innocence. It initiates you into adulthood in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah. And into so, service in a meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. You're living in a country that is in a certain type of setup. Whether you like it or not, you're a part of it. Whether you hold the pacifistic opinions or whether you're left or right, you are taking part in your country. It's something that is very connecting as well. I met most of my best friends that I have now I met in the army. It's a melting pot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I have no experience with the army, so I'm just sort of fascinated by that experience. From there, you were making architectural models and maquettes. So you're traveling around looking for your school to study, Found out it's not architecture, too permanent. <laughs> no, it was really clear. I had an was amazing meeting with this the professor. I had a time with him in his beautiful Hampstead Heath. It was a house that was full of books. He was sitting making me a tomato soup in his garden. It was just really perfect. And I remember him correcting me all the time. Like every term that I'm using, he says, that's not an academical term. I remember myself being in awe and very respectful. On the other hand, I felt I'm too young for this. Yes, but not now kind of feeling. That's very self-aware. Yeah. And we arrived. I remember we arrived. And then my next stop was at Lee Edelcourt School that was called the Design Academy. And I remember this school was different than other schools. And I wanted to know why. But when I went there to Holland, that was my next stop. I The first thing I saw was the cafeteria. And it looked amazing. It sounds really silly to say, but the cafeteria looked so cool that I said, that's where I want to be. And I chose <laughs> it. It's almost to be a choice on the good life. You need to choose your profession. You want to do it wisely. You want to make the right choice. I always knew I want to do something creative. I thought that the peak of creativity will be architecture. And then I realized, yeah, I want to enjoy more and I want to explore more. I thought that Holland was just the perfect place for that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Well, I think it's very telling that you chose your school based on the cafeteria because (laughs) hospitality. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) I was just at the end. It's all about you want to enjoy. And it's funny that all the time when you go into, but the more in depth you go into the design, and it's very funny to say design still to me because it's such a huge field and it touches practically anything that captures your eye at any given moment. 
But when you think about that, when you are becoming too serious about it, I think at some point you're missing the point. I love that. Okay, so this is a, a philosophy, it sounds like, that you live your life by, including your design practice. Yes? Uh, now, yes. I can't say this has always been like that and since then, but now I guess, yes. I mean, Design Academy at that time, and that time, I'm talking about the year 2000, about then, so it's even more than 20 years ago, it used to be really the place that shuffles all rules. There were nine departments, and instead of labeling them interior design, graphic design, fashion design, they decided to call it men in living, men in leisure, men in identity, men in well-being. It was always men. It's really politically incorrect. Yes. The idea of men. In, in 2000 even? It was more about, I think, that, that in Dutch, the word man is meaning human. So it is almost the same. But the idea is, let's say, human and well-being, meaning that design is about people, essentially. And that was the first method. And you could design a chair in any department. But if you will do it in identity, which you should call fashion, you might do something that is around identity. And if you do it in well-being, maybe this chair will be made of wax and it will be disappearing and it will be an ecological... Every department had actually a question, where do you design from? And I think for me, that was a lot more interesting to answer because sometimes we want to do stuff. We want to take part in, cre in the creative process, but we don't really mind if it's graphic design, if it's sculpture, if, if it's functional. I don't think a creative person essentially, especially in the beginning, don't really mind that. So the idea of not creating definitions of the department was really smart. So the first year, you just get confused. And that's a little bit the purpose. And you study yourself. So it's really more about, it's, more, it's very experimental. We used to have a project, take a camera, come back with five-minute video of you in an uncomfortable situation. Like that would be an assignment. Wow. That does sound really impactful because... It is shuffling up your all of your preconceived notions about how the world operates and where you should generate from. And it also gives permission to design from any one of these places and to not be bound by any sort of creative limit. I left there feeling that I've studied philosophy of design. And that I, they taught me how to think. Maybe I didn't go out with all the knowledge of woodcraft and I didn't come out with amazing new softwares that I can control or tools, but I did have something, I think, a lot more fundamental. When you break down all of the silos in, in such a way, there isn't really the concentration of, of craft, of mastery of a certain kind of technique or material, but there can be the appreciation for it. There can still be the attunement to it which it sounds like you left with more attunement than actual skills in your hands, in your body. Yes. From graduation, where were you feeling you were going to start your professional life? And how did you make those first few steps? I remember graduating in two departments. One was called men, or let's say human, <laughs> and activity. And the other one was men and living and well-being. So it was well-being and activity, which are actually very contradictive departments because one was all about advance and tech and more technology. I think Philips Design were the one who were the teachers from Philips Design. The engineers were there. Well-being was more about human humanitarian, essential. It was Ilse Crawford. She was the head of the department. And she was back then making a magazine called Bear. She was living down the Karen, making her own studio. Uh, and all the teachers were philosophers, so it was very soft and humanitarian, and the other one was more like more high tech. And eventually I, I asked the permission to graduate in both because I could not choose. And funny enough, both head of departments fell in love. So Ilza Crawford married <laughs> Oscar Pena, and I'm still good friends with them. And so I found that this balance between activity and well-being, meaning the new technologies and the storytelling were something that is still very much present in, in how I work. I left there. I was lucky enough to connect directly to Lee Edelcourt. And the first thing I did is I did first a stage at Philips Design. So human behavior research department in Philips Design. So it was very tech and technological, but I did more of a philosophical installation there. 
about the sense of touch. And then I moved to Paris to do my second stage in Paris for the Edelcourt studio. And Paris, you never left. I never left. For somebody who grew up moving around, you've put down roots, it sounds like. I Yeah, I think so. After 20 years, I can say that. <laughs> I don't want to say that it's been a passive choice because I just think all eventualities are somehow connected. But definitely I have Holland as a neutral stepping stone to Paris. Yeah, certainly. So this sounds foundational, this Lietel Court. Absolutely, yeah. How did you launch yourself from that? I, it was obvious to me that I have to be at all time independent or liberal. I never considered to work anywhere. I don't even think that it was ever in my mind. I remember a conversation with my dad after Philips Design offered me a, a job there. And he was saying, that's amazing opportunity. It's <laughs> such a good brand. You're just out of school. And I was like, what? <laughs> Did it seem just preposterous to you? Not even considered for a second. It was more about in what world would I sign for a steady contract? Why would anybody? Right after the graduation, I almost failed the graduation project. Mm-hmm. Because I designed a piece at the end that was not very practical. Somehow it was not considered for them as a design piece. I got a six, I think, which is just enough to pass the school. With a lot of uh, con contradiction remarks from the teachers, I graduate in one department with a successful presentation and the other one with a failure. I think the whole ending of my school was very controversial. And then that piece who barely passed got into the cover of the magazine frame. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Whoa. And I remember I, my graduation piece was on the cover of the magazine and I was very disturbed by that. Yeah, it's, it's very contradictory. It does not give you a clear message. It's very shocking and I think it's very important and I can imagine that it happens in many different fields. Academic life is not the same as real life. They try to train us to a certain standard or a certain ID that is actually extremely subjective. The reality out there has nothing to do with academic ethics. And I think it, it was very clear to me. I was well surrounded not to make this event be too important for me, to tame it and not to say, oh my God, I'm going to cover the magazine. I'm going to be great. And we have to open a studio. I, I was actually slowed down. It didn't take me up. They contacted me to do more pieces and I just refused because I felt I'm still in virgency. I'm still too green to, to actually go further. Whoa, that's also really interesting. This is the part of the story where most people get the oh shit opportunity and they do it and either fail spectacularly or scrape by, <laughs> by you know, with the help of mentors or something. But you kind of took yourself out of the running. Immediately, yeah. To get more experience under your belt? Just to feel that you know where you're heading. I remember that I think it was Ilse Crawford that back at school that she told me, you have to be careful. You have a very good way of defending yourself and convincing and that you have to really be careful of what you are talking about because it's a sense of responsibility with it. But it felt a little bit like a warning and an advice at the same time. It comes with a responsibility. Be careful what you're putting out there and if you can really stand behind it. And I think that's true. You don't want just to advance. You don't want just to be recognized. You want to be able to stand yourself behind it and feel that's somewhat worthy. Oh, and there's nothing worse than putting work out into the world that you yourself don't believe in. <laughs> exactly. And, and then having, and then <laughs> making like a worst. profile off of it and people keep asking you about it. <laughs> yeah, the worst is that they might love it. Yes. Then you feel like a real fraud because you've betrayed yourself. A successful fraud. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So what was the first sort of project for you that you felt was worthy of your responsibility and your defense? I think I can split it quite clearly to two decades. I have, I think, the one after school, the, ten, the first 10 years in Paris and the past 10 years in Paris. And I think it was really clear. At the beginning, I imagine I arrived to Paris. I have no experience apart from design thinking. I didn't have really tools. I was making my own pieces. So I was building. And this is like 2001? 2003. It's actually exactly two decades, you know what? <laughs> because I graduated in 2003. Okay, two decades. Let's talk about the first chapter. So I think first chapter would be my life was expanding according to opportunities. Whatever comes, and I would take it 
if I didn't like the opportunity, I would try to change it to an opportunity that might fit me better. So it's not only refusing opportunity or saying yes. It was a, I was independent. I had to work. There's nothing more weird still for a creative person to need to work in order to pay his rent. I say it because it's so particular. And still, there's always a question of what do you give? What do you compromise? Or what are you, how far are you willing to go in order to be able to finance your life? It's as though the creative project or the design framework has to become so internal because you're designing around survival, shelter, how I'm going to manage my energy and my morale so that I can keep doing this. And yet, how can I make this opportunity and learn from it or at least gain something from it, even if I, you know, I'm mostly doing it because I need the money. It's just very raw to be in that position. And so many of us are, especially when our careers are getting off the ground, sometimes it's nonlinear and it can happen over and over again. It's a very curious place because it's similar to taking the pulse on your soul. Kind of, <laughs> and yes. to, how far will you willing to go? And actually is that, and also it's also about not being too heavy about it. Sometimes you think, okay, so I'm being asked to, by this jewelry company and they're telling me, and that's really happened. I come to Paris and I said, I have to get more work. And I approached this beautiful jewelry company called Artus Bertrand. And they were in Saint-Germain-de-Prés. And they were now where the Louis Vuitton is now. They were before. It was a beautiful, very high craft. And I really loved the knowledge that they had about jewelry. Somehow it was attracting me. And I just somehow got to work for them. I don't even remember how it started. And they told me in the first meeting, so here are the best-selling shapes. It's a heart, it's a star, and it's a circle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> These are the okay. third best-selling. So your line, your jewelry that you're going to design for us may have these forms because basically you're going to be paid by royalties. So this was really like a very funny test, but it's similar to many other places. When you meet a person who said, I saw this light that you made, I want the same, but in, in large crystals. Or, <laughs> yes. And then you go... Okay, I can do it, but I might remain anonymous in this one. (laughs) So one of your earlier projects that gained a lot of recognition, and I don't know if it was your first immersive environment, but it certainly is one that seems pivotal to me. You tell me if it was, but it was the Members Club Silencio. Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to, to hear how that project came about and your concept and the things you learned that helped you in subsequent projects. Yeah, Silencio is definitely, I think you pierced it directly into the middle. And that's exactly, I think that's what happened in the first decade. And I think Silencio was 2012 or 2011, right after a few years in Paris. It started from a very innocent and friendly conversation. My cousin knew the owner of a nightclub. We used to hang out together. We used to be friends. He asked me advices. We used to think about logos. And he was managing the Love Parade in Berlin and doing all kind of works with a lot of electronic music. And he knew MK2. MK2 is the cinema and producers in Paris that they, of course, knew David Lynch. And suddenly it happened and David Lynch was in town. And they had this underground place that was completely neglected that they wanted to do an art club. And we spoke about it all the time, what it can be. And it can be like something that is about a social venue for artists, for creative people. And that Paris years have become so boring. We used, Paris used to be so much fun, at least from what I've heard. And so there was a really looking into a programmed nightlife, new venue of culture. And suddenly, so David Lynch came into the space and one thing linked to another conversation yeah, before I knew it, I was the art director. It's not really true. I wasn't the art director in the beginning. I was assigned to interpret the work of David Lynch into feasible design. It started like that because he started to send us beautiful images and ideas, but they were so abstract. It was so, and sometimes like a scenography. And I remember that actually he's used to be surrounded by amazing people who are visualizing and making his ideas into matter. 
And so what happened is like before we knew it, we just started to bounce back and forth. And I used to see very simple scripted, it could be in text, it could be in drafts, and I would just interpret this world into a physical. And it was a long process. I think I had a year and a half of conception. That's like amazing luxury in interior world. A year and a half back and forth too, from Hollywood to Paris, just to sit and concept with him was amazing. He is incredible. Yeah. It's like production design, but it has to be functional and permanent and withstand wear and tear. And so it's not, it can't be quite as fantastical, and yet it has to be. It has to be feasible. It has to be budget-oriented, yeah. And when you step foot in it, you need to be transported into the story. I mean, it must have been sort of wonderful for somebody with an imagination like you to be able to be in charge of everything, the, the furnishings, the fixtures, the textures. It's a 100% bespoke, immersive world in the beginning. Now I think it aged a lot. Still, it has its charm. It has many new guests that are coming there are members. It was an exciting opportunity, not only because you get to work with a director, but to actually not work in a design context. I had to work in a context that's a lot more free. And some things needed to be deliberately non-practical. Like, remember, we made the chairs. It was important for me that they will be uncomfortable, that the sitting in the club will be uncomfortable because every time you installed a comfortable piece in a club, there's always someone there napping. And that just takes <laughs> the whole evening down. It ruins the vibe. <laughs> it ruins the vibe. And when you have these hard seats, you get to sit more towards the edge of it and you're more engaged in the conversation. So you're not like leaning back and relaxing. You're more, so your body gets a different tonus. And that tonus is the mental comfort that you need in that space. So it's really taught me a lot of, wait a minute, where is it for? How will it function? A sofa is not a sofa. An armchair is not a piece that has a clear and steady typology. It has a semantics that change all the time according to the function. And function depends on your intention. So it was all a think tank and Conversing with Lynch was very abstract, which was my preferred way to converse at the time. I used all natural materials. I called up everybody around from Paris that is a craftsman. It is from gilding to wood carving to end grain method to wool weaving and to use everything natural materials and local craft in monochrome gold <laughs> and still keep it warm and not tacky and to take back the legacy of gold. Because it was such a bad color, especially when you think about Paris and all the gilding and the palaces and the Versailles. But take the craftsmen that are working in gilding and used to do this beautiful sitting and ask them to patchwork it on raw wood. It was very exciting. And everybody was on board. So we had an incredible team. We exceeded all the budget that we set to ourselves. But it became such a big success. It was unexpected. And before you know it, it was everywhere. Yeah, it gave you the opportunity to work in all of these capacities, also to translate story through every element of an interior space and behavior and sort of work with the social dynamics that you're trying to create. Yeah. But also to develop your contacts and your relationships with the local craftspeople, because that's a huge part of the way you operate now. No, is, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so did this experience kind of not only open more doors for you to do hospitality and other spaces like that, but then it, did it also ignite something with you, in you? Eventually, yes, but not immediately. What happened to me <clears throat> right after is exactly the opposite. So I just think it's how things work sometimes. On one hand, I felt that I've reached my goal. I, I, there was a moment that I said I just designed one of the most successful member clubs that is programmed with an incredible movie maker. And we have it in every possible magazine and every artist, director or celebrity have experienced it. And it was, it felt like that's it. And I think well, for me, what will happen is that on one hand, I felt that when you have a goal, that means that once you reach it, it's over. When you climb a mountain and get to the top, you got there. And that's why I realized that I was not taking care of my destination. And I think when you have a destination, it's a little bit where you want to be. And I think I never thought about it until that moment, because we always want to aspire to something or get to somewhere or 
and whether it's being acknowledged or having the opportunity to express. But I think that I never really thought about where I want to be. What is the reality that you hope for in which you want to settle, in which you wish just to be there and to continue being there? And in, in a world that we live that is so aspired by peaks and goals and moments, it was for me at first a self-realization that it was a goal in one way and that it was not a destination for me somehow. And on the outside, I received a lot of the worst job opportunities. And they were all like, mostly were clubs that wanted to do the same. And that's what happened in every project. If you do something that is famous, you will mostly get immediately people who want the same as you did there or that you work with. I even got a, a, an offer to collaborate with another very famous director and to do another space. And I was like, see this? What happened to me? I, I just stopped after Silencio and after all the works. I was still doing for some time the art director of Silencio worldwide. It was in some part in New York and in Cannes, in Festival Cannes. And then I think I, I just stopped everything for a year and a half. So you don't stop everything for a year and a half unless you're having some sort of existential reevaluation. Absolutely. Yeah. Full blown. Whoa. Okay. We got to go there, Raphael. <laughs> <laughs> because I think people don't understand that taking care of your creative energy, your creative fire is probably the most important thing you can do. If it's in trouble, it needs to be tended to. Absolutely. And I think I jumped entirely into it. I took it in... I took it all, meaning that I stopped completely to work. I think that happens when you do get recognition, because when you get recognition, then it's only you. Because when you get recognition, then you're facing yourself. And I think that's very interesting. I actually don't think you actually know yourself as a creative person unless you get recognition. Oh, you're kind of blowing my mind. I think you're absolutely right. It's sort of like you don't know yourself until you're in relationship with other and it mirrors back to you. So when you get recognition, it shows you who you are to the world. Yes. And also facing your own values. So let's say on one hand, you think, okay, what do I actually think about what I've done? And it's a little bit like you when you misuse your talent. Talent, I think, goes to a certain extent. Yeah, you should have some sort of talent. But I always think it's about interest. So if you have an interest to go further in that field, you're most likely going to develop the skills and sensitivity to excel in it. And that's equal talent. For me, I know that some ways will be faster or slower, but whatever you give attention to will give you back. I think I was confronted with values. So talent was not that I was doubting that I have or don't have skills or talent to make things. It was about then what? What is it that I'm giving and what is actually my role I wasn't very interested in a financial career of creating a design firm that giving service out. I was interested in telling stories. And so to find stories and to tell them and to work and to generate new pieces and to extend what was not very clear to me. I wasn't really clear on what it is that I want to do. And I had behind me a decade of creation and I just couldn't figure out the common thread to them. And so I think by stopping completely, which was a very tough time for me, but also at the same time, very precious. It was a moment where you're really like facing the question that you started asking when you were a teenager. Like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What's your part in this setting, in this city with your stories? I did a lot of things that I did. So I was from really taking care of your well-being and doing it could be anything. It could be from certain types of sports to meditation, to reading, to traveling, to meet my friends. And you were doing all of those? Yeah. For a year and a half, I was just like studying. I was a lot of study, a lot of writing, a lot of thinking, a lot of talking, a lot of unveiling. And I think what happened is I came back to Paris. I was in and out of Paris, but I mostly was in Paris. And I met Julien Dessel, which is now my agent. He's the biggest agent. For me, he's the most incredible person. That represents, I think, in such an elegant way, the great talent. He met me before and offered to work with him, but I just told him, I don't think it's for me or I'm not ready. I don't remember what exactly I blubbered out. But this time he said, what do you want? And I said, I want a small project, like really small, but the right one. And he found a Japanese brand with a 60 square meters in the Marais 
It's a beautiful brand called Palikale, and I just did their first, like very crafted, very handmade. I was there every day working with patchwork wood and just going back to the material. I think I started from the beginning and it was wood, iron, glass, stone, wood, iron, glass, stone. That was my, these are the materials. This is the world of design. This is all we have. Everything is either vegetal or mineral. So it was something about that connected me back to the physical aspect of craft, which is directly linked to the corporal comfort that we experience, even when you just touch a block of massive wood, into the mental comfort of it, which is everything that your body signals you back. So I think it started for me just to go back to the material and waking up in Paris, which is the mecca of arts and crafts and the know-how and savoir-faire and everything that they have in their legacy. And I just started to hop from one foundry to another plaster maker, to a silk weaving, to a gilding, which everything that I was doing before, it was just not crystal for me. It was not clear for me that was the thing. I already knew it, but I couldn't... You couldn't articulate it for yourself. But there is something about your work that it's transcendent in that it does really connect back through animal, vegetable, and mineral. And in the same way, it elevates all of that with the sort of care and attention of human intervention, like very, very skillful, loving, masterful human intervention. And in the end, when you boil everything away, all that we have is each other and the earth. <laughs> and that's what you have in your work. That's what's embodied in your work in such a meaningful and powerful way. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You started with this small project. You got a better grasp on what it is that pulls you. I loved the scale that I could capture it in my mind and that I could have it in one go. When you think about a space and what you want to do and how what's supposed to be, and you listen to the space and you listen to the client and you listen to the environment, you want to create something that is tamed at the same time exciting. You want to make it calm, but at the same time dynamic. You want to have these two, two things. It needs to have some values that are omitted or that you feel good in it. But I think what happens is that I started to do this space. I dedicated myself to this project entirely, meaning it was all my time. When you work or we do that, you don't really put all your time into 60 square meters over six months. It's something that is impossible. Slowly, I just wanted to have my own recognition on things that I do. So I am okay with that floor. I feel that this floor is good. Why? Because it's made with end grain. We managed to get it dry enough. We managed to create an intuitive algorithm of shapes that work together. This is a lava stone. I'm going to go to the... So I was traveling to the quarries where they, next to the lava in Clermont-Ferrand. It's where they actually have the lava stone. And I spent two days with the lava stone owner, with a quarry. So you spend time with him, with this guy that owns a quarry of lava stone, which is not really a stone. Lava stone, it's not the same as a geological mineral. It's really particular. And he was confessing his stories. Then I'm listening to his stories saying this stone is associated with death. And why is it? Because in France, that's the stone that is relatively light. And we use it for as a black in Christianity. But actually, in Japan, it is used for life and in used to spa in, in North. So you get the story of the material. You fall in love with that stone and then you make something with it. So then I come to the client and says, I've been in this quarry and I have a few ideas that maybe we should keep the stone as it is. The material, the aspect is telling you how to use it, how to take care of it and how can it improve your well-being. And so suddenly the concept is clear. 
So it's more I become a facilitator of these stories that are everywhere. I'm just stitching them together. I'm more of a glue at the end. I'm not inventing something that is not there. But you are interpreting. Unveiling, maybe. Un unveiling, revealing, also interpreting, listening. I mean, I like to describe it as deep and active listening so that the material can talk to you and you can translate for other people what the material is saying. And you've made quite a career in hospitality. I'm hoping that it's providing you the satisfaction that you're seeking, that you're feeling really good. I read somewhere that you said, you know, the last five to seven years of your career, you're feeling like you're really doing what you're meant to be doing. Yes. I have to remind myself that sometimes there's always things that you want to do, but I think if talking about goal and destination, it's more of, okay, now it's still young. I just feel my career as I see it, it's still very young. It's not always the total amount of years that you have worked that represents your career. It's more about the, I think the meaningful time when you feel that the work that you've been doing is progressive. There's always a new crossroad, right? With craft, when you work with hospitality, whether it's a restaurant or a hotel or making a gallery space, or I try to not work with private clients. That's something that I try to avoid just because I'm such a pleaser that I fall into their requests and I forget what my concept was. So I need to be very careful. And that's why when I do hospitality, I get to create something that is for everybody. It's for an anonymous person that you imagine. So my guests are always my client in that sense. And it's a public zone. You can go in, you can go out. It's not closed in somebody's house. It's not about always about affordability. It can be a very fancy chef étoilé from a restaurant in Georges V, but it can also be a more simple hotel. I don't really mind. This is a whole discussion about the world luxury or haute gamme, but there's, I don't really mind the setup. But as you go deeper into craft, it does require a certain budget or certain skills or certain time. And that's why I started to do the work with that I do with the Friedman Benda Gallery. That's how the work started, because I realized if I want to explore further into this rare craft and to mold and to work in bronze molding or to do 18th century upholstery pieces, then I will need to have the right platform. I understand that. And it gives you the avenue and the agency to work with certain craftspeople, you know, and I think we're both on record with this, who absolutely have spent their lives, you know, perfecting what they do and deserve the high price tag that it costs because there is so much meaningful labor invested into it. This is my soapbox, but I get really annoyed when people bemoan the high price tag of well-crafted pieces. If you surround yourself with cheap disposable items, your life will feel cheap and disposable. And if you surround yourself with items that have been loved and cared for and invested in by people who have invested their life in this kind of mastery, then you hand it down for generation to generation. And it's a form of care and generational wealth. These objects that collect stories, the longer they're around and like the rock, you know, they become vessels of meaning for families, for individuals and for society as they become iconic and become symbols. It's funny. You talk about furniture the principle of transmission has been embedded in us for generation. We would used to have, and I think my parents still, would have a chair or a table or a commode of your grand grandmother. Like pieces were constantly in heritage and they had a certain legacy. And so our knowledge of craft or our knowledge of how to take care of materials were a lot larger. It's just like if you just go 50 years ago, not so much, you used to know how to, I don't know, even make a difference between linen and cotton and how to stitch things and how to mend things and how to fix things and to be able to take care of your wood. And yeah, you need to oil your deck and you need to, you take your chair to the carpenter and you fix it and you, re and you continue to use it. But nowadays we came to a point the idea of concepting a simple chair made of wood by a local carpenter is almost impossible for us now. And that became luxury. And that's very sad because that used to be 
the only first option to have. And when you would go for a brand, it's just if you really can afford it. And what happened that twisted to so craft became luxury because the industry is so muscled up. And so when you have even materials, you have so much substitute material. It can be from uh, even aluminum is a solution that is a, it's a material that is a solution. I'm not even mentioning polymers, but all kind of veneers. It's, it's recent. What's up with paint? What's that? You just come like a little makeup coat on the wall and you call it material. That was something that I try to avoid even in the spaces. The use of paint is really excessive. And there's something so thin at the moment about the understanding of material and craft and furniture and our knowledge is becoming smaller and smaller, at least our personal knowledge. And so the idea of seeing the same piece again and again and the same design piece again and again everywhere in every magazine that you open, I don't get it. That's why I think the whole, I'm trying to create custom pieces for every project. So to draw design pieces completely new, even if they're very simple and yeah, trying to get something more personal. The pieces that you do for Friedman Benda are limited edition or one-offs, both? Yeah, could be either. And that also makes them a story that is particular because then we're, cha- and normally they're challenging a certain craft to the, to its end. I think that's what's common with them is that we could work with a very old foundry of bronze and at the same time work with 3D prints of vegetable polymer and then mix it up with projected materials. So it can be more experimental. It's more of a lab projects and they're often made by very traditional artisans. So actually I work with very old artisans to create these pieces and we get to do this again articulative in the French sense of it, of exclusive artwork that are furniture. Art and design have never been separated. It's just a, it's just a, a new old discussion, but it has always been one thing. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I have a quick question about the nature of your relationship. You create these works that are hybrid art and furniture, but are also very much a hybrid of traditional craft and current or modern technology. You know, an example would be the aleatoric shelf sculpture for Friedman Benda that includes a gazillion hand-cut mortise and tenons and also five-axis CNCing. And I'm wondering about the relationship between you and the artisans. There's something really beautiful about this melding of traditional craft techniques through a modern lens, because it reminds us of how timeless and relevant it is, right? There's no reason traditional crafts can only be deployed in like period pieces. That's ridiculous. So on some level, do they appreciate working with you in terms of executing on these pieces that are probably fresh and new for them and push their thinking about what their craft can do. The first thing that the artisan needs to be a partner. They need to really want it. Otherwise, it's not going to go. And when I work on hotels or all kind of large-scale projects, we cross a lot the idea of that's impossible. And the first time I hear an artisan, a craftsman that says, interesting, that's my type of guy. And then the idea is to push a lot of these pieces are coming out of discussions that I have with them. And the aleatoric is particularly, yeah, it's a piece that in a way it could have been made 100, 200 years ago. It's using tradition that it goes back hundreds of years, but the planning and the conception of it not. And also it involves a, a lot of handwork, so you cannot copy it. Just copying it is the craft itself. And there's only one artisan in Europe that agreed to do it. So it was also saying, is it possible? So it's pushing something to the end of it. But I always try to make sure that the expression of it is somewhat timeless, that it's not trying to also show that it's, there's always this balance between humility and remarkability. Either way will doom you if it doesn't go without the other. So I am fascinated by this connection of wood. Will I create, I'd like to make a piece of it. What is it about? So wood needs this kind of fixture because it has so much force in it, because nature has so much, it's so much fibers that are actually sucking the water from the ground and giving it upwards towards the tree. So the whole tree is a bunch of fibers that are collected together like connected veins 
nourished by water. And then I say, okay, so that means that these forces are expanding and shrinking all the time. That's when the, they say wood is a living material. In order to stop them, they need to be maybe composed together in a way that they hold each other and they support each other expansions and retraction in a way that keeps them stable and the whole process of drying up. So there's endless technical aspect, but at the end is very simple biology. And I think that has a really beauty. So the idea of making loads of blocks connecting together, at the first time, they're hand-mounted in a complete mess. Actually, the piece starts with a mold that is completely disgusting, full of connecting wood without using any metal. So the idea is to let the wood do the work between itself. So the wood has to work with the forces. And only when this huge lump is ready and stable and strong, then you put it into this five-axis robotic machine that puts out this perfect piece. So it's handmade, machine-made. Yeah. And it shouldn't look like a futuristic, concerning design that you say, ooh, is this the future? That's not very warm. <laughs> right. Or I, I can't see you know this lasting more than six years in my life. Trends is something that is very dangerous, I find. Can I ask you, is brown your still, still your favorite color? <laughs> All the shades of brown. <laughs> it's funny because I think when we talk about wood, we never say the color brown. It's not a beautiful name. So when you talk about wood is essentially brown, we call it tobacco. We call it smoked oak. <laughs> we have all kind of fancy walnut and nice names to it. But it's still brown. <laughs> it's still brown. Brown is cool. Well, Raphael, thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been really, really delightful. My pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Raphael, including images of his work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them about us. It really helps us when you share Clever with your friends, and we love sharing these stories with more people. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcasts.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows.